All right, let's Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much once again for this tremendous opportunity to gather together as family in a unity that you've provided, Father, that you've ordained for us so we might partake in the peace that your Son has promised us, each of us. Father, thank you for the completed canon of Scripture. Thank you for truth that sets us free, and thank you for sanctifying us, uh, even though we might drag our feet and uh, thwart your good intentions for us. We pray for those that are ill in the congregation, uh, that you heal them as quickly as possible, your will be done. And we pray also for those that are still lost in this world, that we might evangelize them at some point. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt and to make an evening like this even a reality. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, who will separate us from the love of Christ? This is part seven. I really enjoyed uh, the nice reminder we received on Tuesday evening uh, on the Good Shepherd. Uh, the Lord, can you shut that fan off? The Lord pursues us, I should say pursues, but the Lord pursued us with relentless love. Matthew 18, 12 to 14, John 10, 11 to 15. And now that we believers are saved, how much more should we be confident in his love? In other words, we have, I mean, the base reality that he pursued us in love to save us. And that's a incredible thing to think about and as believers knowing this and the more we're reminded of this the more we live in the gospel reality as i like to put it how much more uh, should we be confident in his love romans 8 28 to 35 uh, go to matthew 18 11 as a point of review matthew 18 11 As the Spirit's been mentioning as of late, so much is just perspective. And the beauty of perspective, as I like to think about it, is that it can change everything in a moment. Just a change of perspective can change everything. To remember, if you're having a bad day, just to remember how much you are loved and how much Christ still pursues you in that same love. Matthew 18:11. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost, what do you think if any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray? Does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine which have not gone astray. That just gives us wonderful perspective. And why? Why does he rejoice? Because of love, of course. Verse 14, so it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. Again, the Lord pursued us with relentless love, and now that we believers are saved, how much more should we be confident in his love? What's also interesting about this passage is that if we continue reading it, uh, it extends this core idea of love into good practice, into good 
practice as the Spirit's been bringing up the topic of forgiveness as of late. That's one way of expressing a certain love, godly love. Uh, as the Spirit's been bringing up this topic of forgiveness, we see another side to it. That is, what happens after we uh, forgive someone as well. And this is all within the sphere of of love, and this is also how we pursue, uh, pursue uh, him back. In other words, up here on the board, let me give you this. Forgiveness, then what? The Bible clearly tells us, especially in the churches, that while forgiveness is necessary, we had a whole host of that, uh, a nice reminder from Sunday into Tuesday, but what about after forgiveness? Forgiveness, then what? Is that it? Do we walk away? Do we just, quote, tolerate uh, incessant behavior, ungodliness, especially inside this fellowship, if you would? What does the Bible have to say about that? The Bible clearly tells us, especially in the churches, that while forgiveness is necessary, it isn't the last thing we must consider when dealing with sin. Now, just to keep this in proper perspective, there are two key concepts in play here. Again, forgiveness, then what? The Bible clearly tells us, especially in the churches, that while forgiveness is necessary, it isn't the last thing we must consider when dealing with sin. And so there are two key concepts I want you to think about. First, um, we must do as Paul would say up here on the board, Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. In other words, we're not supposed to hold grudges. That's not uh, what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to have a forgiving heart. So if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And of course, the first step uh, to you maintaining or maybe even regaining, depending on your situation, your own peace is to forgive others. Uh, as people transgress against us, if we don't forgive them, we know from practical experience that even that we lose our peace because we're still emotionally bound up in unforgiveness. And so this is all part of what Paul's writing about. Speaking of Paul's sentiments here, hold your thumb, go to Colossians 3.12, Colossians 3, verse 12. So Paul has a lot, of, lot to say on this topic. Again, first um, on this topic is, as far as it depends on us, we need to be at peace with others. Colossians 3, 12. So, as those who have been chosen of God, that's you, believers, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with uh, one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love. And I love the closeness there of forgiveness and love. And the way that it's written, even, we might rightly conclude that if you don't forgive, if you don't don love, then you sow disunity. And that's what we see here. So you see forgiveness, and then in verse 14 he says, beyond all these things, 
put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let, and then look at how he ties the next topic we've been studying. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And so you see forgiveness, the perfect bond of unity, which is love, and then peace as a result, as fruit of these things. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. That brings our last series into view. How does God enlighten the eyes of our hearts? We take in the word of God. We have the word implanted, if you remember that passage. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. That's what it means to have the word implanted. With all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So, I love Colossians. The more I read Colossians 3, just Colossians, but specifically Colossians 3, the more I love this chapter in the Bible. It's just so magnificent and has so much to do with what we've been studying over the past couple years. Again, though, we're on a track here. First, we must do as Paul would say up here on the board. Romans 12, 18, If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And we just saw that, that the peace is the fruit of forgiveness and the bond of love. Second, while this is true, we must not compromise. Now, this is going back to the previous point, the instigating point, what goes on after forgiveness, in other words. Second, while this is true, we must not compromise our willingness to protect the fellowship that has been granted to us by God to enjoy as fellow believers. Again, we must not compromise our willingness to protect and be very practical right now. Do you feel safe and secure right now? You should. You should feel very protected. Um, we shouldn't compromise that. We shouldn't let wolves in here that are going to sow discord or sow disunity that's going to fracture um, this perfect bond, which is love. So while we are called to forgive, and as long as it depends on us, let's be at peace with others, we also must not compromise our willingness to protect what we have. And it doesn't mean this church, I don't want you to become, this isn't going to become weird cultish, this is our church, you know. Ooh. I don't want it to become like that. But this is a gift. This family, this congregation is a gift. And we ought not compromise our willingness and our right and the command to protect this thing. I don't care how you look at it. You want to say it's your family, your church family, your fellowship, your congregation, your church. It doesn't really matter. But we ought all be willing, starting with me, the shepherd, of course. Um, we should be willing to protect it. Again, the obvious example before you is North Christian Church and we as members. This is what Jesus was getting at in our main passage. So let's pick up where we left off and see how Jesus commands us to treat sinners in the church. Not a very popular passage we're about to read. 
Go to Matthew 18.15. Matthew 18.15. Now, some people like to draw these things out and say, oh, step one, step two, step three, step four. I'm not really caring about doing that. I just want to read the passage and, and see what the Spirit says. Matthew 18.15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. Okay, that would be step one. Do you understand? If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, throw them out. Maybe not permanently, but throw them out. Why? Because they're obstinate. Because they're not interested in the unity, in the peace of a fellowship like this. People like that are self-absorbed. And we're, starting with me, we are to protect the rest of us from those people. So just to give you some clarity, what does he mean, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector? These were derisive titles to Jews. The point Jesus was making was that someone so impenitent has revealed an unbeliever's obstinate heart, thus requiring defensive actions to protect the church. Yeah. That's Jesus' words, not mine, not Pastor Ed getting all, you know, uh, protective. These were derisive titles. The point Jesus was making was that someone so impenitent has revealed an unbeliever's obstinate heart, thus requiring defensive actions to protect the church. So, to recap, in this wonderful passage of Holy Scripture, Jesus extends the core idea of love into good practice. Well, what does it mean to love? Everybody likes to talk about love, but what does love actually mean? Is it loving that I might protect you from the wolves? You bet. Uh, is it not practical if I see something going on and I ignore it? Yeah. So what Jesus was saying is that love is placed into good practice. And particularly in a church like this one. So first, we must be at peace with all men for as long as it depends on us. And then second, we mustn't ever compromise our integrity to the body of Christ by turning a blind eye to disruptive sin in the church. It has to be dealt with. And if it can't be dealt with at a, at a personal level and it becomes a problem, then it has to be dealt with corporately. Because ultimately, we have to get that out of the church. And a person who's unwilling to repent, to um, see and admit the error of their ways, they have to be removed. Because now we have a heart issue. Now we have an individual who's not willing to accept good counsel, godly counsel. So I was thinking about this because this, I'm telling you right now, it's not a popular passage at all. 
to this second point about not compromising integrity to the body of Christ. The word tolerance has become a Trojan horse for attacks on the church. In other words, wolves come in on this horse called tolerance. You have to tolerate me. You're a Christian, right? How dare you not love me, no matter what? Christ had uh, unconditional love. That's true. But if he saw you, he'd throw you out and you're behind. Doesn't mean he didn't love you, didn't want you to be saved, but he's not going to let you ruin it for everybody else who he's keeping in the fold, nice and tidy. So this point, this idea of tolerance has become a Trojan horse for attacks on the church. For example, if a church follows Jesus' own counsel, like we just read in, say, Matthew 18, 17, in other words, and for lack of a better term, shun them from the church. <laughs> you're out. doesn't have to be permanent, but you're out. If we do that, we are counted intolerant. All of a sudden, I'm, a, I'm like some intolerant jackass. And anybody who goes along with it is the same. In other words, if I do as I have done multiple times in the past, that's right, you may not realize it, but I've protected you in this particular way several times. Out. We'll talk a month or two from now. Or just throwing them out permanently, ultimately. But if someone becomes a stumbling block and it starts to become a cancer in the church, I have to remove them. Some of you are like, you've done that? Yeah, I've done it several times. And the beauty of it is that you don't know about it. That's how protected you are. So if I do, if I, as I've done multiple times in the past, I'm called intolerant because I remove a disruptive influence from the local assembly. That is nothing more than a satanic scheme to fracture the unity and peace that God has afforded this congregation. To call a guy like me a well-intentioned shepherd who's interested in protecting this flock intolerant because I follow Jesus' command to throw out a disruptive, sinful, unrepentant influence, to call me intolerant is nothing more than a satanic scheme to try to fracture the church. What these morons propose is that I completely forget. Now, concentrate. This is what I deal with. And this happens for people that I choose to keep in the church as well. And some of you will listen to my voice right now. What these people propose is that I completely forget. You ready? This is how self-absorbed some of these people can get. When they get to, like, level number four, they, they, they propose that I throw out all my integrity, my commitment to the Lord as an under-shepherd, to the one who's saying, do these things. They propose that I completely forget about the rest of the flock. That's you. Who are often dealing with their own things, who are often weak and brittle themselves. 
But you see, a self-absorbed person doesn't think about others, do they? They'd rather call me an intolerant jerk. So what these people propose is that I completely forget about the rest of the flock while a disruptive person places a, you know, a full stick of TNT in the midst of us and then tries to light it. That's not tolerance. That is a gross failure to protect the flock. So you see, love and the pursuit or the preservation, let's say, of peace are what guard us. There's a very practical side to love. I'm convinced that if there's not a practical side, you might say, you mean if there's not fruit? Yeah. If there's not a practical side to love, chances are it's not God's love. It's some other thing. And when it's God's love, it protects us. It guards us. Philippians 4, 7. And as a result, you and I even get to enjoy peace. Because we do not allow such disruptions to fracture the unity of the faith. The bond of love. Because as soon as I stop loving you, I stop protecting you. And now I've just ejected all of us outside the sphere of love, the bond that ties it all together and results in the fruit called peace. That's my failure, if I let it happen. And I'm not saying I haven't let it happen in the past. There's stuff I'm thinking about right now that I'm wondering about. Should I act on? Don't know. Got to pray on it. See what happens. I'm usually pretty swift. I can tell you that. Philippians 4, 7, And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Hmm. So this peace will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. But anytime there is guarding... There is implied guardians, right? Something is standing post. Or maybe even someone who's called to protect is standing post. Well, what do you think a shepherd is? For starters, what do you think my job is? Isn't it just to like study the Bible and come up here and teach? That's the fun part. Right, Scott? See, Scott gets all the fun. Being a teacher, he just gets to learn, teach, and be like, yeah, this is so much fun. I have to teach and shepherd. And the shepherd part is the brutal part. Because people are ridiculous. So a shepherd is a guardian over your souls. And that's what I am. Go to Hebrews 13, 17. Don't take my word for it. Go to Hebrews 13, 17. What do you think my job is? And I mean no disrespect, Scott. You know that. I love you. 
It has nothing to do with Scott, you know, one gift being better than the other. I'm just making a distinction, that's all. That teaching is fun. <laughs> it's the other stuff that is brutal. Hebrews 13, 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them. Some of you are still learning that lesson, but that's sanctification. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? For they keep watch over your souls. What do you think about that? Yeah, that's my job. Which means that if I see an outside influence, a wolf, and it can be any one of you on any one of you as each other, on one another even, because even Peter got called, get behind me, Satan, right? So at any given point in time, you'll be like, oh, I'm like, I'm like, I'm not perfect, but I'm pretty close. Yeah, but when you're not, you're vile and you're disruptive and I have to worry about it. Do you follow what I'm getting at? So most of the attacks are from within. Most of it's like, you know, people biting each other. But sometimes it comes from without. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. I have personal responsibility over you. Personal responsibility. There's no getting around it. Didn't ask for it, but I got it. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. For anyone to suggest that a man of God is intolerant, for protecting the flock is actually destroying the profit meant for those in the flock. A false Christian couldn't care less because in their eyes it's about personal profit. Not profit for others anyways. They don't care whose lives they're screwing up or disrupting because they're self-absorbed as it is. Again, the point on the board and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Even what I've been teaching so far this evening should give you some level of peace. Well, let me just tell you something. That peace has a real cost. It's wearying to stand post. Ask any soldier. I'm sure Joey was tired as heck out there seven days a week, 24 hours a day. For what, a year or something? I'm sure he was really tired. Yeah. Because standing post takes effort and vigilance and diligence and discipline and training and all these things. And it's hard. But that's the cost of protecting and maintaining that unity so that we have all have fruit called peace which surpasses all human comprehension, and guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Again, if love and the pursuit or preservation of peace are what guard us, then up here on the board, love and peace preserve. God uses those who keep watch over your souls, Hebrews 13, 17, along with the word implanted, James 1, 21, in order to equip you for the building up of the body of Christ, Ephesians 4, 11 to 12. In other words, <laughs> peace is the result of God taking care of his own business. 
God looking out for his own. And he says, I'm going to choose you, and I'm going to choose you, and I'm going to choose you among the many to stand post. And I want you to do this job. Unlike the fake pastors that Jesus talked about, the hired hands, the ones that don't care about the sheep, who will leave as soon as the going gets tough. It's not about me or this gift or anything, but do you see how practical God is? You know, peace, it was, oh, peace. I think I'm going to get a tattoo right here. Peace. Nothing wrong with that. But if that's as far as it goes in your head, that it's just a punchline, then you're missing the practicality of God. God is, let's put this into perspective. God is so practical, he became a man. You mean he didn't just say, I love you all. I'll send you this book. I love you all. Nope. He said, I, I, I love you so much, and I'm so practical that I'm going to become a man. Is that not practical enough for us? That he became flesh and blood and then died? Is that not practical enough of an illustration for us on how practical God really is? There are whole collections of so-called Christians that sit in ivory towers and just talk about peace and love and, you know, and there's no practicality to them at all, which is why most of the time they're bitter and distraught and gross and could care less about others in the faith. God's so practical that he became a man in order to save you. So indeed, we may rightly conclude that God's love is that practical. Again, the instigating principle from Tuesday's lesson up here on the board, the Good Shepherd. And what did the Good Shepherd do? Laid down his life. Is that not practical enough? Because that's what love does, to pursue the fruit of peace, to reconcile one person with another, Two alienated folks, let's say. That's what love does. It pursues peace. The Lord pursued us with relentless love. And now that we believers are saved, how much more should we be confident in His love? I was thinking about this as well. Whether you realize it or not, the Spirit's been really trying to protect you from the onslaught of lies in this world to protect you from lies about the church of Christ itself. I think people like to wax poetic about the love and peace of God, but they really seem to get practical about it. Nor do they really ever want to. That's the phenomenon. Everybody wants to talk about the love of God. Oh, rock concerts, music, you know, K-Love, no offense. I know I'm probably going to get hate mail now. We'll talk about K-Love. You know, it's all this, uh, la, la. everybody wants to talk about love, right? Uh, da, 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 da. Yeah, but what about the practical side? What about living life? Living life is not driving and listening to K-Love 24-7. 
Life actually has to be lived. I think people like to wax poetic about these lofty ideas about God, like love and peace, and oh, isn't he just so compassionate, and isn't he just so this, and he is all those things. But you're kind of missing the point if it never becomes a practical reality to you. And they may never admit it, but they don't actually want the practical reality. It's as if sanctification is nothing but a fancy word that the Bible uses to talk about God's will only for us versus His practical expectations. So we're going to read a passage that reveals what God Himself thinks about practical Christianity. And I don't want you to say, oh, well, that's Old Testament Israel. You know, and they were under the law, et cetera, et cetera. That's just you trying to weasel out or something. I don't know. But rather, I want you to look at the big picture, which reveals that God is a very practical God. He's a very practical God. And I think, I just think that people don't want it. People just don't want them. They, it's almost like if you look at someone's life, they almost, it's almost like they're saying, but I don't want to be practical. I just want to carry on in my emotionalism, but I don't actually want practical Christianity. I just want to carry on about Christ. But here's what I see in the Bible up here on the board. God is practical. When God directs His children to walk a certain way, he expects their obedience. He expects their obedience. Now take, for example, what we just read from Jesus Christ's own mouth. If this person doesn't listen, even to the elders in the church, throw them out. Wait a minute, they're going to throw them out. That sounds awfully practical, doesn't it? Those to me. Either Jesus was impractical, unloving, or he knew exactly what he was saying. And we need to follow and obey his commands. When God directs his children to walk a certain way, he expects their obedience. And if they refuse, they must face his wrath. For example, Ezekiel 20, 10 to 21. We're going to go there in a moment. Ephesians 5, 6, 2 Corinthians 10, 3 to 9. Okay, go to Ezekiel 20. Verse 10. We're going to read this. It's too involved to get too in-depth into the context. But you'll see what the Spirit's trying to establish. Ezekiel 20, verse 10. Twenty, verse 10. So I took them out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. I gave them my statutes and informed them of my ordinances, by which, if a man observes them, he will live. Also, I gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between me and them, that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes. Now think about how practical God is getting here, isn't he? 
Uh, there's a practicality here. When I say do something, I want you to obey it. They did not walk in my statutes, and they rejected my ordinances, by which, if a man observes them, he will live. And my Sabbath they greatly profaned. Then I resolved to pour out my wrath on them in the wilderness to annihilate them. But I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations before whose sight I had brought them out. So these people are getting saved by the skin of their teeth, but you're seeing what God thinks about practical living. Also, I swore to them in the wilderness that I would not bring them into the land which I had given them, flowing with milk and honey, which is the glory of all lands, because they rejected my ordinances. And as for my statutes, they did not walk in them. They even profaned my Sabbaths, for their heart continually went after their idols. Yet my eyes spared them, rather than destroying them, and I did not cause their annihilation in the wilderness. I said to their children in the wilderness, Do not walk in the statutes of your fathers, or keep their ordinances, or defile yourselves with their idols. I am the Lord your God. Walk in my statutes, and keep my ordinances, and observe them. Sanctify my Sabbaths, and they shall be a sign between me and you, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. But the children rebelled against me. They did not walk in my statutes, nor were they careful to observe my ordinances, by which, if a man observed them, he will live. They profaned my Sabbath, so I resolved to pour out my wrath on them to accomplish my anger against them in the wilderness. Again, what do you see? A very practical God. When he directs his children to walk a certain way, he expects their obedience. And if they refuse, they must face his wrath. Go to Ephesians 5, 6. Ephesians 5, verse 6. There's a lot of so-called Christians out there that have no walk. And this isn't a religious statement. It's just against the word of God. Let no one, Ephesians 5, 6, let no one deceive you with empty words. You know, Gum flappers with no walk. I'm going to sit up here in some ivory tower because, you know, I have a double D and a PhD and a something something in theology. Right? And I'm just going to throw little mandates down at you like, you know, like little uh, birds or chipmunks. I'm going to feed you from the bench from above. But I'm not going to have any, my words are going to be empty because I have no fruit myself. I have no practical love. I have no practical living. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Again, the point the Spirit's making is very simple. Our God is a very practical God. And it's amazing to me. How many people don't like that idea? They, they'd rather be emotionally spun up in an idea. And when the, when, when the God of the universe says, okay, you seem to be motivated. Let's talk brass tacks. Oh, no. Oh, no. Time to find another church. Because this practical living stuff, this practical God stuff, now, it's kind of cramping my style, you see. I got other plans for Saturday night. And it doesn't include living for others. 
It doesn't include being vigilant about attacks from without on my so-called family that I like to tell everybody. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. You should see my church family. It's the best. Scott's so handsome. These are the things I hear about. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, you know. Everybody loves the idea of these things, but it's often just an emotional, I don't know, kickback from a game being played. I don't know. Not always. Our God is a very practical God, though, and He has expectations regarding the one thing that keeps us, let's say, inside the sphere of peace and love. Obedience. Speaking of practical ramifications ordained by God, let's now consider a topic a little more closely that no one seems to fancy anymore. God's wrath. You want to alienate someone? Start talking about God's wrath. You will, within probably, let's face it, within, what, 30 seconds, you will be called an intolerant fool. You start talking about God's wrath, it's hard enough to just talk about His love anymore, which is usually more easily received. Lead off with wrath, you will be called intolerant. So? Sean and I were talking about that. So what? What what does it mean if you have zero friends in this world because the world considers you intolerant? You know what I would argue? you're probably closer to the truth than the so-called Christian who has a hundred friends, with the world especially. So let's talk about wrath. Consider Paul who fought the good fight out of love for the sheep, and consider the wrath those who received his preaching would have absorbed from God. Consider the wrath those who received his preaching would have absorbed from God. Go to 2 Corinthians 10, 3. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3. It's one of the things I love about Paul, especially when I think sometimes, because, you know, I'm human, I get doubts. When I think I might get off the pulpit and go, whew, that was harsh. And all I have to do is pick up Paul's writings and go, not as hard as Paul. (laughs) Boy, that seemed intolerant. No, it wasn't. Not compared to Paul or even Jesus, who taught Paul. 2 Corinthians 10.3 For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we are ready to punish all disobedience. Whenever your obedience is complete, you are looking at things as though as they are outwardly. If anyone is confident in himself that he is Christ, let him consider this again within himself, that just as he is Christ, so also are we. For even if I boast somewhat further about our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will, be, will not be put to shame for I do not wish to seem as if I would terrify you by my letters. In other words, Paul wasn't interested in um, 
making good people stumble. But he also wasn't interested in facilitating evil. If he saw evil in a local assembly, he would call it out. And I guarantee you this, he would follow Jesus' commands. If a person was obstinate and refused to change their practical living, he would have thrown them out. He said, throw that one out. Hand them over to Satan then. Let that be that person's judgment upon themselves. We forget about those things because in our culture, it's all about the individual. Everybody else can go to hell, right? It's all about the self-absorbed, selfish little jackass. I want it and I want it now. And everybody look at me because everybody's an island now. And that's what our culture promotes. And what about the rest of us? What about the hundred other people that are standing around taking shots from you? How about the hundred of us get together and throw that one the hell out? Say, oh, you're welcome to come back when you're repentant. You want to come back under or on good terms? Great. But until then, God is practical. I speak I am speaking biblically right now. That's not very popular, is it? When God directs his children to walk a certain way, he expects their obedience, and if they refuse, they must face his wrath, and I stated this earlier up here on the board, obedience is what keeps us inside the circle of commands where peace and love exist. If God says do this thing, and it's a very practical thing like we saw with those four steps, what have you, then that's what we're supposed to do for the preservation of peace and love. And in that situation, in that context, it was for a local assembly even like this one. That's my job. As a shepherd, that is one of my primary duties, to keep a lookout like this all day, every day, all day, every day. And you know what, you know what the saddest thing is? I don't usually have to go above this horizon. I'm usually just looking at you all, making sure you're not devouring each other. Happens more than you might think. But obedience is what keeps us inside the circle of commands where peace and love exist. So let's think really lofty for a moment. And I'm going to start trying to tie in the last, oh, ten lessons, right? We had, I think, three on how God enlightens the eyes of our hearts, maybe four. And we're on part seven of this one, which is who will separate us from the love of Christ. So let's think really lofty for a moment talking about life and practicality, God has designed us to draw from our experiences. And His Word consistently uses our experiences to teach us about Him, His peace, His mercy, His grace, His love. Okay, so anybody experience um, mercy or grace or love this past week? Okay, would it be fair to say that the vast majority, you don't have to raise your hand because you didn't anyways, but um, would it be fair to say that another human being was involved? Yeah. Yeah. 
So you mean God actually uses other people in a practical way to sanctify you, to reveal to you His grace, His mercy, and His love? Yeah. His forgiveness? Yep. Because I know that person would, have forgiven, would not have forgiven me 10 years ago. But now they're being sanctified by God. Next thing you know, I wrong them. They're forgiving me. They're so strong now that they're crossing the chasm like Christ did. Say, I don't, don't, even, I don't even care. Are we good? Can we get this? That's very practical. I think people forget about that. Oh, Jesus will deliver you. Oh, wait till the love of God comes and pours out on your lap. Yeah, well, if nobody's actually being practical whatsoever, guess what doesn't happen sometimes? Nobody shows up in your time of need. When the Bible says, bear one another's burdens, right? Read Galatians 6 if you don't believe me. That's really practical, isn't it? How about the burden of the cross? Is that not practical? Enough for you? Nobody wants to, that's the problem. So, but God uses our experiences, our life, to, to teach us about Him. Plainly stated, life is, let's call it dynamic. I think this came up a couple of weeks ago as a word. It was a good word. I used to think of it as the dynamic spiritual life. However you'd like to think about it. Life is dynamic, and God uses the uniqueness of your existence to glorify Himself. In your own eyes, in the eyes of others even. And that's impossible if life isn't practical. So life is dynamic, filled with opportunities for God the Holy Spirit and the Holy God of the universe to reveal Himself to us but I need you to concentrate in closing here. This revelation of himself is different than worldly forms. Than worldly formed ones. For in the world, you know, some of us do as the Jews did. We look for signs. Everything's, you know. Or the intellect in us looks for knowledge like the Greeks but God reveals himself differently. This is, the, this is what's so magnificent about our God. He reveals himself by transforming the one who is, to rob from James, looking intently at the perfect law, which is the law of love. Let me put it this way. Instead of always changing things from without, God promises to sanctify us from within. He doesn't just change what we see. He does something much more magnificent. He changes our eyesight. See, what most people are looking for is, you know, this... God, you know, you have to bring all these blessings into my life for me to believe in your promises. Um... I think that sanctification is about things from without. But the magnificent thing about our God 
is that He transforms us. And instead of just changing the landscape, He changes our eyesight. The landscape hasn't changed. You know people are going to be people are going to be people, right? You know, if, if this jackass dies, another one pops up, right? Right? And just so your boss loves them and they hire you, hire them, and now you've got to work with them. I always get a kick out of that. You know, no matter what you do in life, there's going to be jackasses. Because people are people are people. And so if the landscape never changes, on average, what's the only thing that can change? How you perceive it. How you see said landscape. That was something we learned in our previous series titled, How God Opens the Eyes of Our Hearts. Here's a perfect example from our previous lessons up here on the board. The supernatural word. To see and hear truly ugly or offensive things without losing our peace is supernatural. This is not a blessing for those who refuse the way in which God imparts such things. John 4.24, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. In other words, there is no other way to be sanctified. As the Spirit highlighted earlier, peace is a function of sanctification, which means that the more we are sanctified in Christ, the more peace of His we shall enjoy in time. But as I mentioned a minute ago, this isn't about God changing things we see, but rather changing our eyesight. And that's so much, that's, and i got to close here, that's, how we started off. Perspective is so very important. God isn't about changing the things we see, though we might see them, and we might see them in other people and rejoice in what we see. But those people could be being sanctified all along, and until your eyesight is changed, until the eyes of your heart are opened, you don't see the glory of God in that thing. And therefore, you don't fellowship the way he wants you to fellowship. You're one of the people that comes into a church like this one and disrupts it from within. And it takes the patience, mercy, and grace of God, I suppose, to sanctify you, to change your own eyesight. So you begin to see things the way God sees them. And we are out of time. I didn't get to connect a few dots, but hopefully you guys will be here on Sunday morning. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this wonderful privilege of gathering together as family. Thank you for protecting us while sanctifying us. And thank you for the fruit of peace that your Son has promised us, our Lord and Savior, Father. Thank you for giving us a practical perspective, a practical view of life itself. This is where the proverbial rubber hits the road, Father. Thank you so much for sanctifying us this way. We just appreciate your patience with us along the way so very much. We ask for more of it, and we ask for your Spirit's guidance as we take all of this 
out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs us so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.